Keep Talking exists to have conversations that might help to make a better society and a better culture. As humans, talking openly to each other is one of the key tools we have to gain knowledge, to seek the truth, to foster curiosity, to exchange and explore ideas, to see nuance, to ask big questions, to defend individual liberty, to resist ideology and tribalism, to heal and develop, to glean insight, to learn from history, to change our minds. And in that spirit, I believe that each guest has important information and stories to share. This show is also a deeply personal project for me to learn, to grow, to reduce my own ignorance, to try to make me a better human being and a better citizen. And it's something that I want to share. David Blankenhorn is the founder and president of Braver Angels. During our conversation, David talks about why Braver Angels exists, tribalism and division in the United States, Braver Angels' goal of depolarizing American society, the workshops it runs with red and blue Americans, and its workshop's success at discovering shared values and greater understanding among politically opposed citizens. I admire the work that Braver Angels is doing. America is an incredibly tribal place right now fueled by media and technological echo chambers. We're in trouble, and we're in desperate need of civil discourse and civic engagement. Lowering the temperature on political division and understanding our fellow citizens has to start from the ground up, one conversation at a time. And that's precisely what Braver Angels is offering to the country. I became a paying member after the interview, and I encourage you to do the same. Their work and their success gives me hope for America, and this is a conversation I will never forget. I hope you enjoy this conversation with David Blankenhorn. All right, David. Well, first, I want to uh, just say thank you for doing this. I have wanted to meet you for months. Um, It's really great to be in here and to uh, get a chance to to talk to you at length about what you're up to. Um, Welcome to the show. It's really great to meet you. Thank you. Good to meet you. Happy Happy to be doing this. Thank you, man. I would love to start at the beginning for you, and I know a decent amount about your biography, it seems like you've had a meandering road to this point in your life. <laughs> That's um, one way to put it. <laughs> yes. If you could maybe start at the beginning of a narrative that makes sense to you as to what is bringing you, you know, to the work you're doing now, to this table, um, how did that start? How do you articulate that story when someone asks you that? Well, I was... Um you know, I'm from Mississippi. I was born in 1955 yeah. and grew up in Mississippi. And the big experience for me was being a, a member of my church and becoming, um, you know, involved as a young white guy and trying to think about the race issue because this was during the middle of the civil rights era. And my family was split on it. You know, most of my family was that time in the <clears throat> 60s, you know, were pro-segregation. Some weren't. And um, I I think that I was, I think I, I think I had a, a thing of early on wanting to kind of keep people together, you know, mm-hmm. you know, you don't, you don't want your family to break up. Yeah. You know, so I think that, had an influence. Clearly, the civil rights movement had a kind of morally important experience for me. And then growing up in a place where most white people were strongly opposed to it, you know, I think that was a big shaping experience. And then in my 
life, I, I mean, the way I see it from the inside yeah. is I've spent most of my life trying in one way or another to bring differing parts of things together, you know, so whether it's liberals or conservatives or interdisciplinary academic work, or I've always been interested in kind of, um, work that, yeah, brings people who don't see the world the same way together. To me, that's been a consistent thing. Now, sometimes I've failed, you know, I've been involved in things where that has been attempted, but failed, but it's always been, usually it's been kind of there for me, you know? So I've never had a regular job. You know, I've never applied for a job. I've never had a boss. I've never, you know, filled out an application. I've only done one thing in my life, starting when I was 15. I started basically social change-oriented organizations. Hmm. And I started them and led them and then started another one. That's all I've ever done. So in some ways, there's been a, that constant. And I think the one thing I think's been a constant in terms of substance is look for the common good by bringing people together across some kind of difference. Yeah. And sometimes having that not work and sometimes having that work. Yeah. And I want to talk eventually during this conversation about now and i think it's easy to have a recency bias where you, you know, people who are around now think that this is the worst time polarization has ever been in this country and i'd be curious to get your thoughts on that and maybe to speak specifically as to your work in your life uh in the spirit of trying to bring people together what those arcs looked like for you personally when you were doing various works obviously today it seems like the political tribalism is is an area of interest to you. Um, are there other elements of culture that you felt like in various decades needed help to bring people together to make a better society? Yeah, you know, th- these things kind of go in waves, you know. I mean, I, I'm... Have a, my academic training is in history, and I've always been a kind of history person. So I think the most polarized era in our American American history was in the 1850s, of course, leading up to the civil war. Yeah. You know, you had a half a million people die because we couldn't get along together and disagreed over things. And then when I was a kid in the 1960s, that was also highly, I think we were more polarized in the sixties than we are now. I mean, the, uh, not just the civil rights movement, but maybe even as much or more so the Vietnam War, was a period of intense, intense polarization along political lines, along generational lines, along class lines, along race lines. Um, And then I think uh, now is maybe the third big era of of polarization. Hmm. And I think what makes today's polarization different than earlier periods where polarization was high is because it's not just around one or two issues. Today, we seem to be polarized on everything. I mean, everything, clothes, whether to wear a mask, I mean, everything. There's nothing that doesn't kind of get run through this 
grid yeah. of tribal, uh, I try not to use that word, of group, team uh, uh, loyalties. And, and you know, whereas in the 1850s, it was slavery. In the 1960s, it was mostly, I think, Vietnam and sort of race broadly defined, but now it's everything. Yeah. And so um, <clears throat> I think that's what's distinctive about today's polarization is you just, you just can't avoid it. It's yeah. just everywhere. So. Yeah. Both of those first two examples you mentioned involved massive violence, right? The civil war was domestically and the Vietnam war was in Southeast Asia, but still tens of thousands of pe- hundreds of thousands of people right. died. Um, <clears throat> I think in the spirit of this show, part of the idea here is to have better conversations or conversations that can, uh, lower the temperature or mitigate the risk of social upheaval, social violence. Um, when you look at where we are right now in terms of the polarization in society, what tactics, if any, that have worked, I've uh, told a lot of people I I was going to be meeting you and everyone was interested, but everyone was, uh, had a degree of disbelief that it could actually be accomplished, you know, creating a society where people who vehemently disagree with each other could get, still get along well. Right. Um, are there tactics that you have found really do work in an attempting to achieve that aim? Yes. Um, the main, uh, thing that I see working is when you can, bring together um, uh, in either one-on-one or small groups people who really disagree really deeply about things and you can put them in an experience where they actually are talking with each other as opposed to talking about each other or, you know, there has to be a structure to it. We got our model and our work mostly from, uh, family therapy because some of the people that helped design our program had a background in family therapy. And in the 1970s and 1980s, there was a kind of a movement within family therapy that really creative people said, well, now wait a minute, families in crisis, there are certain really kind of therapeutic methods that you can use to help a family in crisis are a couple on the brink of divorce. What if we tried some of those same methods with, you know, groups in conflict as opposed to couples? What if, what if, what if we wanted to prevent a civic divorce, yeah. you know? And so it really, we found that works, hmm. you know, and a lot of it has to do with, um, you know, things that aren't that hard to, aren't that complicated. It's just, that like one of our rules is that when we talk to other people and our, you're not trying to persuade them to change their mind. It's hmm. not a debate about the issue. So we go into the conversation where neither one of us, and we agree to this in advance, we're not trying to win the other person over yeah. to my correct view. Um, it's about really the opportunity to tell you what I think and the opportunity for you to tell me what you think and for us to see what are the differences and where is the common ground, if there is any. And in the process, we become human beings rather than stick figures. 
we almost always find out that there's more common ground than we realized. We usually find out that we have something to like about each other, mm. even though we don't agree. We've become human beings, yeah. you know, rather than stereotypes. And that works. I mean, we measure this. We have thousands of people who've gone through this. And uh, we do pre and post test. I mean, you know, it, it definitely works. You're less angry, less polarized after having gone through this. So then we encourage people to form local groups in the community to keep doing it on a, we form chapters, basically. We call them alliances. We now have 73 of them around the country. We have 10,000 dues-paying members. So people, you know, there's a, there's a hunger for this. Um, I think there's a kind of a heart sickness out there among a lot of people. They just don't quite have a sense of they can do something about it. Yeah. You know, so we give them a chance to do something about it. So we know that works. Uh, and now the trick for us is whether or not that same method can be taken into the halls of power. Like, would that work in Congress? Would that work in media? Would that work in uh, on college and university campuses? I mean, would it? could you actually <clears throat> take what we, we know works at the citizen-to-citizen -citizen level <clears throat> and begin to affect institutions. Now, we don't know that yet, but that's what we're going to try to do. That's what we're trying to do now. And I think it's going to work. I don't see why it wouldn't work. Yeah. Um, I mean, some people are skeptical about that, but I've, we're going to... I think it needs to be done whether it works or not, you know. I mean, most interesting things that happen in the world don't happen because somebody, like, calculated the odds. They read the tea leaves. You know what I mean? Yeah. Most interesting things happen because people feel the need to do something regardless of how it turns out. Yeah. So we feel the need to do this regardless of how it turns out. Yeah. But so far, it has produced some good results. That's great to hear. And I want to get into the details eventually in the conversation about what exactly you do during these sessions to back up a little bit related to your story and the story that leads you to lead this organization here. Uh, in the little I know about your biography, it, it does seem like you know you have experience at various points in your life. Um, you've changed your mind about some major topics that were once very important to you. And I think any evolving person, if they're being honest with themselves, would recognize that that has happened to them too, that <laughs> you, you never quite know where your beliefs are going to go as you get older, as you get exposed to new ideas, new people. Um, if you could, maybe we can start with um, prop eight and where you were, at that time, that seems like almost a generation or two ago now. Um, <laughs> Not to me, brother. Yeah. Seems like <laughs> seemed like yesterday to me. So that that is something, as I understand it, is a subject on which you did change your mind. And I, I'd be curious to get in as much detail as you're willing to share how that happened for you, what what your thinking was, how it evolved, and how that maybe applies to the work you're doing now. Yeah, it definitely applies. Um, I was. Uh, I started a think tank in 1987 called Institute for American Values, and our it was a think tank, and our job was to study civil society. You know, and by civil society, we mean organizations, sort of levels of association that exist between the individual and the state. Mm -hmm. So families would be one, religious institutions. You know, you know, father daughter Sunday breakfast, you know, like just 
group, you know, Burke called Edmund Burke called them the little platoons. Yeah. Some scholars call them intermediate institutions. And, you know, uh, Robert Putnam famously wrote about them in a book called Bowling Alone yes. yeah. about the decline of these institutions. It's causing some of the problems we're having today. Well, anyway, I spent 30 years thinking about this. Yeah. And the main thing I was thinking about was families. And within families, the main thing I was thinking about was fathers, the role of fathers. And about the time I became a father myself, I, <clears throat> I wrote a book about the role of fathers. And it was a big thing for me. I mean, I just spent years and years and years on this, you know. I mean, I was like a jukebox. <laughs> you didn't even have to put a nickel in. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, um, and then in 2002, I had been into this for a while. And... Um, Along comes uh, a gay marriage emerges onto the national agenda because of a Supreme Judicial Court decision in Massachusetts. Yeah. And um, all of a sudden, you know, and I'm, man, I'm older than you. So, I mean, I think for probably people your age, this has always been just kind of normal. Yeah. Well, like gay marriage is probably not that big a deal for you, I'm guessing. Maybe, yeah. I don't know if it is or yeah, it isn't. True. But for many young people, it's just yeah. not that big a deal. It was a big deal yeah. for an older generation. <clears throat> We'd never heard of it. It never even occurred to us. Yeah. And I've made friends with lots of gay leaders. It had never occurred to them either. Mm. It just got sort of thought of. Andrew Sullivan, yeah. <clears throat> um, my friend Jonathan Rausch. Uh, I mean, there had been some pioneer writing going back to the 50s and 60s. But in general... It was an entirely new idea. Yeah. And, and so it popped up um, after having spent about a decade being sort of developed by gay writers and thinkers, particularly Andrew Sullivan. Yeah. Uh, and, but and others, Evan Wolfson, Jonathan Rausch, there, you know, but really a handful of other, of other um, kind of public intellectuals. This got legs and became legally uh, viable. And then in Massachusetts in 2002, boom. Um, and so people like me who had spent years, oh, family this and marriage that and fatherhood this, all of a sudden we were being called upon to have an opinion about a subject that we had never yeah. given a nanosecond's thought to. Yeah. And I remember getting a call, I remember so vividly, I didn't want to say anything about it because I didn't think I knew anything about it. B, I, I, it didn't even take it that seriously, really. So I got a call from a reporter from USA Today who said, um, <clears throat> there's a study out from some academics that says um, children don't really need their fathers to develop normally. And I said, well, who, who in the heck? Oh, and they said, not only that, they said, scholars agree. <laughs> that they, that's crazy. Who said that? And he said, "Well, it's this group promoting gay marriage." And I said, "Well, no, I don't forget it. I don't want to. I don't want to go there. I don't want to say anything about this subject. Call somebody else." And so I'll never forget Karen Peterson, a hmm. reporter. She said, "Oh, so you're Mister Father. You're, you're Mister. You're the guy who th claims to know about this. You're the guy that's spent years of his life traveling around the country talking about this." Very exact subject. And a bunch of people have now come out to say something about your topic. Yeah. Fathers. Yeah. That you think is wrong and you're not going to go on the record on it. Okay, Karen. <laughs> I'll go on the record. 
It's a bad, that's not true. What they say is simply not true. It's not, they can say children don't need their fathers, but it's not true that academics agree that children don't need their fathers. Yeah. I mean, it's been years. Anyway, so she put it in the paper. And because I was sort of in the public eye, all of a sudden I'm against gay marriage. Mm. And so when it, and it's hard to, it's hard to say to people who, didn't have that experience directly, just how intense people's feelings were about this. Yeah. This was not something that people took lightly. I mean, there was a generation of people who this was the moral issue of their youth. And I'm, I don't mean just gay and lesbian people. I mean, a yeah. lot of straight people were like refusing to get married themselves. Yeah. Until gay and lesbian, you know, like this was a very deeply felt thing. Yeah. And so I got, I got caught up in it and didn't really want to be, but, but so I said, okay, well, I better say something about it. So I literally took about a year to think and read mostly in anthropology and ended up writing a book called the future of marriage. And about half of the book was concerned with gay marriage. And I said in the book, I said, there are reasons to be for it. There are reasons to be against it. But the reason, in my opinion, the reasons to be against it are stronger than the reasons to be for it. Yeah. That's what I said. And so I became, um, <laughs> kind of, you know, I became the, I became an anti-gay marriage guy. And it's about the only subject anybody wants to talk about. Yeah. You know, everything else is this one. So then you mentioned um, 2010, there was a referendum in California that passed that effectively outlawed gay marriage in California. Well, this was challenged in the courts and the, uh, the prop, it was proposition eight was the ballot initiative that, the validity of that ballot initiative was challenged in the court and it was called the prop eight trial. And it was the most famous, mm. uh, trial, uh, court case up until that point yeah. concerning gay marriage. And <laughs> they asked me to be a, a witness in the trial to say what I thought. So I said, okay, I'll do it. <clears throat> And I said, is anybody else going to do this? And they said, oh, yeah, we have this person, that person, all these people. And I said, oh, that's okay. I know, I know and respect a lot of these people. You know, they were prominent people, you know. So then uh, they called me up about two weeks before the court hearing and said, they've all stepped down. They're not, none of them have, they've all backed out. Why'd they back out? Well, the judge has, uh, in general, they don't want to be like vilified in the public eye. And, but in specifically the judge, judge Walker has decided to uh, televise the, the hearings yeah. and to, to make public the thing. So none of them wanted that. So the guy, the guy said, well, you know, you could leave too. I mean, I understand. No, I'll do this. So I knew going into it that it would be an absolutely horrible experience. I would be squashed like a bug, you know, but I just figured, well, it's a you know, it's a federal court. They've asked me to say what I think. I've spent twenty years deciding what I think, and 
I'm really going to be, it's like talking to Karen Peter. I'm really going to be such a coward that I'm not going to say what I think. So with, with, I think, somewhat full knowledge of what was about to happen. Yeah. I went and, and was in the trial and I thought I had a good experience on the stand. David Boys was the cross-examiner. He's a famous yeah. uh, lawyer. And we spent two days talking to one another and he was very assertive in his cross-examination, his examination of me, but I was, you know, I thought, I, I actually enjoyed it. It was an intellectually rigorous thing. Well, yeah. of course, in the publicity that came out about it afterwards, <clears throat> it was all like, I was a bigot. You know, Frank Rich at the New York Times wrote not one, not two, but three long articles just calling me a bigot. And I, I was doing it for money. I was doing it because I hated gay people. And, uh, and uh, you know, my children re read those articles. You know, they were like 10, 12 years old at the time. So they're reading articles in the newspaper saying their father's a bigot. And this was happening to me hundreds of times a day, you yeah. know, social media, everything. Like I was became a poster boy for being a big. And um, <clears throat> so it was a, t it was a, not a, uh, not a, uh, you know, it wasn't a lot of fun. Now I, I was never, you know, nobody ever threatened me physically, you know, nobody could fire me yeah. or at least directly. So that went on for about, who one or two years, and then um, early on, I had made uh, a, a guy reached out to me. His name is Jonathan Rausch, and he wrote a book about the same time my book came out, a little bit earlier actually, called uh, "Gay Marriage: Why It's Good for Gays, Good for Straights, and Good for America." He's a gay man uh, 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 journalist. He works works at the Brookings Institution. Hmm. And we began as kind of going around the country in these debates. You know, he's pro, I'm anti. But what happened was we were, am I going on too long? No, please. Okay. We're sitting in a, we got, we got these, we were in uh, Athens, Georgia. After a typical boom, boom debate, <clears throat> it starts pouring down rain and we both have to go to Atlanta for the airport and I have a car and he doesn't. Okay, I'll give you a ride. Good in the car, pouring down rain, bumper to bumper, traffic. We're in the car for like three hours in like pouring rain, bumper to bumper traffic, going to Atlanta. We could have walked faster, yeah. you know. And But what was really interesting is that we began to actually talk about things other than why you're wrong about gay marriage, yeah. you know. So I don't, and so at the end of that thing, I remember he got out of the car and he said, this has been really an interesting thing that we've just had here. I said, yeah, it really has, John. So that really, um, we, we became friends. I, I visited him in his home. I met his partner, uh, Michael, who's now his husband. Um, we convened, um, off-the-record sessions where 10 uh, pro-gay marriage leaders and 10 anti-gay marriage leaders met off the record for weekends. He, he and I co-wrote articles about we don't agree on gay marriage, but we can agree on civil unions, which was a kind of a yeah. stopgap thing that some states were considering. So 
what happened, and then he introduced me to other people, Dale Carpenter, who had written a great scholarly book on the legal history, and uh, William Eskridge, a law professor at Yale, who was a big muckety-muck on the legal development issues, all gay men pro, pro-gay marriage. Hmm. And, um, but it was really with John that I, I became friends, and it was really a transformative thing for me. You know, it really was. And the one thing he never did privately was try to beat me up about my views. He never even remotely insinuated that I was a bigot or bad person, motivated by ill will, doing it for money. He never said what everybody else in the whole wide world was saying, it seemed to me, yeah. uh, on the other side. So, uh, in 2012, I decided to say to the world that I had changed my mind on the issue of gay marriage and um, because I had and I hadn't changed anything I thought about marriage I hadn't read any new studies I hadn't you know didn't nobody presented me with new facts yeah <laughs> but because of the relationship with him and because I met some other people I I, I felt that I had not really understood the lived experience of gay and lesbian people. It had just been kind of an abstraction. I had this kind of wall of knowledge or something. You know, my research, I had books. I, you know, like I had this kind of protective barrier, intellectual thing. You know, I was a little bit bulletproof in terms of, but it was the relationships that um, started with my friendship with John that really got me to think that I... I just felt I experienced a thing in a new way. I experienced the balance of good, bad in a different way. I gave more, uh, more uh, uh, attention. You know, I don't know quite how to say it. Just more awareness of the fact that you know these people just wanted to have a legal connection to the person they loved. And it was like, this is really bad, you know? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I, I wrote an article and because I had been in the public eye a lot, it was a big deal. When I wrote the article, there was a big thing in the New York, a big profile in the New York times, gay marriage opponent changes sides, big victory for gay marriage. And, um, so all the people that had been uh, calling me a bigot for, couple of years stopped doing that but then all the all the people that told me i was such a wonderful person for being against gay marriage started calling me horrible names just sold out threw us under the bus succumbed to pressure have no backbone must be getting money from somebody <clears throat> so the organization i was had run for 30 years fell apart all the funding dried up, the board members quit. It was just a whole collapse. And so I was just kind of by myself, you know, it's kind of a dark night of the soul. You know, what am I going to do? I mean, good grief. I managed, I, I seem to, I seem to have been one of the few people that managed to just outrage everybody <laughs> on the subject, you know? Uh, so I started working with John on really what became uh, Braver Angels because we, we thought, well, gosh, it's not just on gay marriage, yeah. you know. We're the country's splitting apart on so many areas, and and so he's now, you know, I'm very. I talk to him all the time. I talked to him this week. 
about about and he helps me with fundraising he was on our board one of our founding board members and um so that very searing experience that i had um where an effort to were an effort to unify people around support for marriage failed a 20 year effort of mine failed failed spectacularly failed in a highly dramatic way had all kinds of financial personal losing friendships of many years it was not a fun experience although it was uh, probably not that i mean you know many many people went through so i'm not saying i was unique but anyway it was it was not a not an experience i'd like to have again um but so that that led to what I'm doing now, um, where I thought, well, okay, I've got a little gas left in the tank. Let's try to do this right. You know, let's try to see if we can do something at the grassroots level that really can, I guess to some people, just kind of, reproduce what happened with me and John around the gay marriage issue. Yeah. You know, that's a very long winded answer, but, um, but, um, the only, the only other thing I'll say about that is what, what I learned. One of the things I, one of the many things I learned is if you change your mind about something, you will be roasted. Yeah. No one. And I mean, no one believes you're in good faith. And I, and I, and that's a sign of a. I'm forgetting me. Yeah. I'm saying that's a sign of a society that's not functioning well, right? Because when when no one is allowed to change their mind about anything without having their head cut off, this is an indicator that something's not working right. Because, um, again, taking me out of it. Yeah. But if you just tell everybody in public life that the one thing that will destroy them forever is to change their mind about something. That's good. Societies don't work that way. Yeah. So. It sounds like you were canceled before yeah. people were canceled, you <laughs> yeah. know, and, and that the, the, you can, I would imagine have empathy for people now who say <clears throat> the wrong thing or said the wrong thing years ago. That leads to all of the kind of name calling and backlash that you received. And I wonder with the point you just made that a, a society that does not act in good faith, that does not allow its citizens to change their mind without major repercussions, there's a sickness there, I think is what you're getting at. And I'm, I'm curious to get your thoughts on what is causing that. Why, why are we seemingly at that point right now where that is a kind of fact about the culture? Yeah, I, I don't, I feel like I really know the answer to that. I don't really know anybody who does. Um, you know, we're, we're living in an age of intolerance. You know, they, we, we don't tolerate um, disagreement. If you disagree with me about a political issue that I consider to be important, I want to destroy you. Mm -hmm. I want to, excommunicate you from the group. I want you fired. It, I want harm to befall you as punishment 
for moral transgressions. And, um, <clears throat> and you know, when, when you experience this on a big scale, I don't know if you, during the, remember during the Clinton presidency, remember Monica Lewinsky, sure. the intern, <clears throat> that there was a, some kind of sexual relationship between her and President Clinton. Well, I never paid much attention to it. I mean, I, you know, I followed it in the news, but it never occurred to me to try to put myself in her shoes. Like, what, what, <clears throat> what was that like? <clears throat> well, I've since found out. I'll tell you what it was like. It was what happened to me only a thousand times worse. She had literally millions of people around the world raining down the worst kind of hatred on her. People who had, didn't hardly knew anything about what happened, obviously didn't know her, but spent a considerable amount of time abusing her in every possible way they could think of. And unless you've been through something like that, you really don't quite know what that's like. And so, yes, I have tremendous sympathy to people for people who go through this. And, um, and it's not a good, we don't, we don't, it's nothing we should be proud of that we treat, uh, uh, people like Monica Lewinsky that way. I mean, leaving aside whether what she did was right or wrong, leaving aside, you know, um, whether or not the person who's being wiped out, whether maybe, maybe they did do something wrong. I mean, I guess often they, did. let's say I did, hmm. let's say, which I think is true. Let's say I, um, was, um, uh, I didn't think I was bigoted, but let's say I was, let's just say I was, well, um, there's a way to engage people who you think are acting in bigoted ways that I think are is responsible, is morally responsible, maybe even morally required. But the way we do it now is not one of them. It's just yeah. not one of them. It wasn't the way to engage Monica Lewinsky. It certainly wasn't the way to engage me, yeah. except when John Roush and, you know, he, to me, See, because he, he communicated to me that he cared about me. Yeah. You know, to me, that's the essence of the thing. Like, <clears throat> let's say I think you have a terrible view on something. Well, if all I do is start pointing my finger at you and calling you names, racist, 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 terrible, Dan's a racist. Does, you know Dan did this racist thing? Let's get rid of Dan. He, we'll pollute us all by being his <laughs> racist self, you know? <laughs> Well, first of all, it will not make you any less of a racist. That's the one thing we know. It yeah. never, ever works. Nobody ever changes their mind on the basis of just being pounded and yelled at and berated and denigrated and humiliated. But if I came to you sincerely and let you know that I cared about you as a human being, that I had an inward desire to do good to you. Mm -hmm. That was my goal, to do good to you because you're a human being made in the image of God, and that's I wanted to do that. 
And part of that relationship was telling you why I disagreed with you about whatever it is we disagree with. Then there would be a chance that you might change your thinking or at least be more aware of mine or, you know, something good could happen in the world. So it's not like I never tell you, it's not like I'm not supposed to, I guess, confront you or to, you know, have you engage about differences, but it has to be preceded by your confidence that I actually care about you. Yeah. Otherwise, why would you give a shit what I think about anything? Yeah. And, and, and who put me in the position of being able to tell you what's good or bad about you when you know very well I don't even care about you? No. You're just a you're just a, a datum to me. You're just an object for me that I can stand on to beat my chest or to signal my virtue. Yeah. You know? Yeah. So and it, because the way that you describe what happened to you, I think what is increasingly happening to people who have views that are out of step with the uh, acceptable viewpoints currently in culture are um, it's, it's like a religious purity test. There's something about the condemnation that is reminiscent to me of fundamentalism of uh, a violation. You you use the word transgression earlier that it's a violation of some like religious code, tribal code, uh, and I, I think I be- there's a lot of truth to that. And some, you said what's causing it. I, and I said, I didn't really know. And then we kind of got off on something, but I will say one thing that I've thought about a lot. That's re- very close to what you just said, which is that when, <clears throat> you know, sometimes people have defined religion as whatever value you have. That's the highest, yeah. your highest yes. value yeah. Is real, that's why some people say everybody has some religion in the sense that everybody has something that they think is the most important thing. Yeah. Well, with Christians, you know, you know, what's the purpose of you know to love God and enjoy Him forever? You know, for for a communist, it's the it's the revolution. You know, everybody has something that's their ultimate thing. Yeah. You know, and when when moral and religious things recede in importance, which I think they have in the society, when when the sort of civil religion of society that used to say things like, there was a kind of a, mor- Peter Berker called it a moral uh, uh, canopy. Uh, whenever that canopy moves away, kind of attenuates, what rises to the top is politics. <laughs> politics becomes the highest thing. So, the highest purpose of my life is to advance my political agenda. It's not to, you know, go to church, always tell the truth, early to bed, early to rise, yeah. uh, treat your neighbor as yourself, uh, uh, you know, observe the Sabbath day and keep it whole. Those are not the things anymore. Yeah. The thing is advance my political agenda. And so crushing you in order to advance my political agenda, all of a sudden is, why not? Yeah. You know? Um, and I do think that explains some of the reason why the intense, we see the intensification of conflict about this. Because um, 
there's no higher set of values to which politics is accountable. There's nothing up there yeah. governing the behavior. The only thing is winning. You know, it's like that James Carville book called All's Fair. That was a polit- he's a big political strategist. All's fair. He meant it. Yeah. He meant everything is fair because the stakes are so high. The future of the world depends upon it. And if it means crushing you, small price to pay. Yeah. You know? You use, I, I think if I heard you correctly, the phrase, um, uh, a social canopy or a, a, I think you, you use the <coughs> word canopy. Canopy. Moral, moral canopy. Yeah. And I'm, I'm curious to, you know, tease that out a little bit in terms of, and I don't know if there's a time frame you think about where there's a delineation that's clear in your mind where we began to lose some of those, you know, whatever you want to call that social virtues, uh, collective belief in, in, uh, concepts like that. But what, what are those specifically, or what were they that you think kept some of the political, uh, stridency at bay or had for a period of American history? Well, the scholars in the mid 20th century would typically, they would often use the term civil religion. Yeah. There were a whole series of very influential books with that phrase in it. Robert Bella and others, uh, you know, spent a student of religion, um, uh, wonderful guy I got to be friends with later in his life. Um, and it meant that you would take the the Abrahamic um, inheritance, Christianity, Judaism, Islam. At that point, it was really what they would have called Catholic Protestant Jew. Mm-hmm. Will Herberg wrote a famous book called Catholic Protestant Jew. But now you would think of it as you would probably include Islam, and you would say, okay, um, you, you take the moral and spiritual values of that, roughly speaking, biblical culture, <clears throat> And you, that becomes a kind of set of reference points or a set of orienting points for all political behavior, or all behavior, including political behavior. So um, one of the things uh, you would do is you're not supposed to tell lies. So if you tell a lie, which of course people do, you're supposed to try to hide it. And if you get caught, you're supposed to be ashamed. Mm. But basically what you're supposed to do is not tell lies. Well, what if that no longer applies? I mean, I'm not trying to make a partisan point here. I know lots of people in my own family and world and organization think that President Trump was a good president. But President Trump was really indifferent to telling lies. He thought telling lies was fine. And uh, I think I think that's hard to dispute. Mm. Okay, what happens when? Or if you want to go back to Bill Clinton, Bill Clinton told a lot of lies. I think. Um, again, not trying to make a partisan yep. point here, but yep. what if people in high public life just don't mind telling lies, and, and when they get caught, they don't seem to be ashamed. Well, that's a violation of that civil religion code. Another, another one is that you're supposed to treat other people with respect, even if you think that you're supposed to assume good faith. 
you know, because the religious idea is that we're all made in the image of God. So when I look at from a religious point of view, if I look at you, I'm if I'm a Christian, hmm. if I look at you, I'm supposed to see Jesus. Yeah. That's really the idea yeah. for a Christian. Jews say it in a different way. Muslims say it in their way, but it's the same idea. It means we're all a part of a sacred image, and you don't desecrate. You don't. You, you don't treat even. There's a secular version of it, Kant, uh, Kantian. It says that you never treat another person merely as a means. You always treat them as an end. They have, they're an end in themselves. Their good is something that is an end in itself, not just a instrumentality for you to achieve. Well, what if that goes? Yeah. What if that gets thrown out the window? Yeah. Um, so, and there's a whole series of these, um, I would say, restraints. Usually they're considered to be restraints on the desire to dominate others, which is a deep human desire. So these moral and spiritual restraints um, are increasingly no longer there. And so we're just fighting for our political agenda with a lot more arrows in our in our quiver, you know, a lot more weapons, a lot more things you can do to harm your enemies and advance your side. And I think that's what we've seen. And now I don't know the degree to which <coughs> secularization has contributed to that. I mean, you know, now you have a very large number of Americans who have... Um, I just think it's obvious that the influence of Abrahamic religion is declining in America institutionally, personally. I mean, I don't, I don't think it's open to debate. Yeah. And so, and I'm not saying there aren't strong secular moralities. I'm not saying there aren't wonderful people who are not religious, who have, who have better moral behavior than I do, for example. Yeah. I'm not, not denying any of that, but I am observing that what they used to call the civil religion, which were restraints that everyone was supposed to be accountable to, right? Yeah. Not just Republicans, not just Democrats, everybody. Yeah. And so if you're a Republican and you see a Democrat do a bad thing, or sorry, if you're a Republican and you see a Republican violate this, you're supposed to say, Bad Republican, don't do that anymore. Even though it's a member of your party, same with Democrats. Yeah. When's the last time you saw that happen? Yeah. About anything or anybody. Yeah. It just doesn't happen anymore. Right. So um, if I wanted to pick a cause, that would be on my top five list. The, the, the weakening of a shared, I'm going to say civil religion. Yeah. And do you point to a certain moment, a certain time period in which that began to unravel in your judgment? I, I, I think it began to unravel. And here I'm with Robert Putnam a little bit. He wrote a book called um, The Upswing. Well, it's kind of ironically titled because it's really about the downswing. Yeah. And he says the deterioration in these communal values uh, that he's talking about 
really began in the, in the mid-60s and late 60s. That's when he would trace it. And he, he has, you know, chapter after chapter of all the data. And I, I think that's basically right. I mean, I think a lot of things that happened in the 60s were absolutely great. Mm. You know, you had the civil rights movement. You had the, well, that was the 50s and maybe through the mid-50s, through the mid-60s mainly. And the women's movement, the environmental movement. So I'm not saying everything was bad about the 60s. I am saying that I think some of these things began to break apart then. I mean, think about public lying, right? I think it was absolutely shocking for millions of Americans who came to the belief that President Lyndon Johnson was regularly lying to the people about Vietnam. And millions of them, I was one of them, who supported him politically over Barry Goldwater, the guy he, met, he mm. beat. Yeah. But, you know, we actually have a president who stands up and tells lies. And um, a lot of people felt that way about President Nixon. A lot of people feel, felt that way about President Clinton, including me. Mm. A lot of people feel, feel that way about former President Trump. Um, and it, it's hard to... It's hard to <clears throat> understand the body blow that that is to social trust, right? You know, there was a song, and I, I learned it when I was a little kid. Uh, what did you learn in school today? Hmm. What did you learn in school today, dear little boys of mine? I learned that Washington never told a lie. I learned that everybody's free, and that's what the teacher said to me. Uh, our, our leaders are the best of men, and so we elect them again and again. That's what I learned in school today. Well, forget that. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> Nobody's singing that song. Yeah. You know? Um, so I think it was... And also there were social change, the social change that began to accelerate in the 60s does... Even very productive social change sometimes causes people to lose their trust in each other. You know, um, I don't know all the reasons, but and I don't really usually believe in kind of periodization where you say, "Oh, this is when it." But if I had to pick a point where trust began to decline in the early '60s, if you ask Americans. Do you think our political leaders are generally trying to do what's best for the country? Yeah. I think like 80% of Americans said yes. I don't think you get 20% who say that anymore. Yeah. Right? So our trust that even if we don't like them, they're generally speaking trying to do what's good for the country. It was here. Boom. Now it's here. And that that fall, you can see it in the data, really began in the 60s. Yeah. You know, this is a conversation in part, I, I personally agree with everything you said. Um, I, it's disturbing. It has been just personally disturbing to see, even in my lifetime, I think a noticeable decline in social trust and in the quality of dialogue, the idea of giving people the benefit of the doubt, of believing that they're coming from the right place, right. a good place. 
that you have more in common with one another of, of your own citizens, your fellow citizens, than you than you do disagreements. And you know, I want to get into some of the nitty gritty, the details of of the work you're doing here, the the aims of the organization. Um, maybe if we could start to kind of put a bow on what we had just been speaking about. It, to my lights, there is a role that new technologies have played in exacerbating some of these underlying issues. I think you're right. Which is something yeah. that I would imagine you've thought a lot about. And I, I would like, I think that, you know, the, the term echo chamber is rampant. It's well known. It's talked about, I think, rather often now in America. You know, from your perspective, what is the role of the smartphone, the social media platforms, what has just hit our culture with great force in the last 10 years? What has that done to affect the dialogue, the trust levels, the ability for people here who disagree with each other about certain things to uh, no longer be able to regard people who they inevitably are going to disagree with about something as worthy of respect, worthy of dialogue, worthy of believing that they're coming from a good place. Yeah. Well, in our work, and when we ask people who come to our events, what they, what they think is causing it, usually that's the first thing they mention is the role of the media. I mean, I can think of two big aspects of it. I'm sure there are more, but one is the ability to customize your news. I mean, you can, Uh, it was much harder in earlier generations to only encounter uh, things that reinforced your own views. Now, because of, I can select because of the algorithms of social media and because of the ability for me to just customize what my consumption is of news and opinion, I can never encounter anything other than that that reinforces my existing beliefs. I mean, I don't have to, ever, ever be exposed to anything hmm. other than that which says, David, you're absolutely right about everything except it's actually worse than you thought. <laughs> <laughs> you know? Yeah. And so, and so, you know, shame on us in a certain way for doing that because we have to, we have to participate in that. And then, of course, the Facebook and Twitter, I think, and others have algorithms to... <clears throat> reinforce that to once they figure out that you like articles that have the word green in them, they're going to give you more and more articles that have the word green in them. And that's something that maybe they're contributing to, but the new media, the, the digital media allow us to customize our news consumption in ways that earlier generations were just not able to do. Yeah. Um, and, um, so we're only in other words we're not we're not so much informed as we are riled up mm. right because it's, it's not about telling you something you don't know yeah it's just about getting you angrier about it yeah intensifying your emotions about it right so i think that's one part of it the other you know <clears throat> another part of it i think is the shift from analog to social involved a massive decline of the influence of journalistic standards. You know, there used to be a time, children, (laughs) years ago, where certain conventions uh, obtained in the world of journalism and media 
broadcast media that were intended to serve good social purposes, and generally speaking, did. Uh, there used to be a thing called fact-checking. Hmm. You would submit an article to the editor. The editor's job was to make sure that you weren't saying crazy things in the article that were just factually wrong. Well, that's gone. Hmm. I mean, a few, few places still do it, but most media that we consume today, they're not fact-checked. <clears throat> um there was a notion of journalistic balance, the idea that you're supposed to, in good faith, have opposing views represented in your presentation. No one does that anymore. I mean, except weirdos, people who are just weird. Um, um, uh, uh, there are some others, but I think fact-checking and in in generally editing, you know, generally they would most things that we would consume earlier would, in one way or another, there was an editor who had to approve it mm -hmm. and then to say, "This is an inflammatory paragraph. Take it out. This is not clear. Make it clear." Um, you know, you're writing an article about something that happened last night and World War Three broke out last night, and you didn't mention it. Put it in there. Yeah. But those people don't exist anymore for most um, most of the media we consume. So I just think part of it has just been a flagrant abandonment of all of these historic practices that kept things from going off the rails. And now, you know, in the digital era, anybody can publish anything and does. Yeah. You know, so it doesn't matter what it is. You can just say the craziest thing possible. It's out there. Yeah. So I think that contributes to a kind of um, disorientation. Um, I don't think we're even beginning yet to understand just how disorienting that is, you know. But when people say, a lot of people say now, they say, when I was um, arguing with somebody I didn't agree with, what I thought, what it felt emotionally like was we were arguing about a country that we both recognized. Yeah. No longer. It's like we live in different countries with completely mutually unrecognizable. Like, you know, I ask you, what happened in America yesterday? And you're going to say A, B, C, D. And then you ask me, what happened in America yesterday? I'm going to tell you something that could not be further. Yeah. from what you just said. And so I think the um, the combination of these two things, customizing your news consumption and no standards of journalism anymore where people just say all kinds of crazy stuff and there's no regulation of it, I think it ultimately it contributes to that, almost that feeling of vertigo. Yeah. Right? Like, really? Are we both here in this country now? This, yeah. We're in the same country. You know, if what you're saying is true, and I think there's good reason to believe it is, we're in trouble. You know, yeah. th th this is a this is a time of of potential great peril for for America, and I think we're in danger of losing some very important things. Yeah, yeah, I think we're on a precipice of some kind. I want to get into the moment for you of 
deciding that a, an organization like this needed to exist in the first place. And then I want to get into the details of the sessions that you run and the, you know, potentially some of the hopeful learnings that have been obtained through these sessions. My understanding is that Braver Angels came into existence around 2016, which yep. obviously was a, a, an important turning point in American history, uh, or at least a, a noteworthy turning point in American history. What happened to you? What did you see? What made you, what triggered the uh, belief and the energy in you that made you think a place like this needs to exist? And maybe if you could just broadly outline the mission, the goals of the organization first uh, and speak to that, that would be I think, useful to kind of segue into the specifics of what Braver Angels is up to. Well, we say that our mission is to bridge the political divide and strengthen our democratic republic. So we want to bring people together across the partisan divide to build relationships with one another, not to change each other's minds and not to form positions on issues, but to rebuild a kind of civic friendship uh, uh, and to try to strengthen the bases of our um, American uh, government, which are at risk because of these trends. Um, we began experimenting in 2015. John and I pulled together people on both sides of the gay marriage debate. This was after the Obergefell decision hmm. uh, that legalized gay marriage, the Supreme Court decision. But the, the, the follow-up to that was a huge, intensely felt arguments over what came to be known as uh, religious liberty uh, and uh, and you know gay rights the 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 perceived tension between religious liberty and gay rights and so we brought together some discuss, some discussions and they were good discussions people on both sides of that issue um to again is there some common ground do we really have to hate each other that kind of thing but what really began braver angels in the work we do now now it was it was just a very specific occurrence um the day after the 2016 election i called uh, a friend of mine david lapp who lives in south lebanon ohio with his family and i had known and worked david had worked with me at the institute for american values since he was in college hmm. and so we knew each other and he he had gone out to South Lebanon to work on a research project with his wife on young working class 20-somethings and how they're thinking about life. And um, so anyway, I, 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 ca I called him up on the day of the election and I said, David, how are, how are things in South Lebanon? And he said, oh, it's pretty, pretty good, you know. Um, uh, we, uh, he said our county went 70% for Trump. Yeah. And, um, and there's a, and, and, you know, David's a, David is a, you know, conservative and, um, uh, and he said, you know, there's a lot, people are, people are feeling pretty, you know, most, most people in my little circle are feeling pretty good. And he, he said, how are you doing? How are things on the upper west side of Manhattan? <laughs> So I said, man, you wouldn't believe it. I mean, it's like it's like people are walking around like they all got shot in the stomach with a shotgun, you know, just stunned, angry, you know, depressed. Like, what? 
what? You know? And uh, couldn't have been any different. So we were talking about it, and I said, David, what if we got 20 people together in South Lebanon in two weeks in a church that you choose, and 10 of them will have would have just proudly and happily, you know, voted for Donald Trump, and 10 of them would have happily and strongly voted for um, Hillary Clinton, and we get 20 people together, we'll spend 14 or 15 hours together over the course of a weekend, and we'll see if there's any way to bridge anything. So he said, uh, great idea, uh, let's do it. So he went out and recruited the people. And then we, um, we but we didn't know what we were going to do, really. And uh, so we called up uh, Bill Doherty, who's a, a professor at the University of Minnesota. We both knew him. And he, he comes from that marriage counseling thing that I, I mentioned earlier, where he was he thought that families in crisis, that some of the tools could be used for groups and social groups in crisis. So he kind of on the fly, back of an envelope, developed a little uh, protocol for uh, uh, first meeting was on Friday night, all day Saturday, and then Sunday afternoon from like two to five. So it was a really long time. Yeah. And, um, and we had no plans for it. I mean, all, it was just, let's just see what happens. I mean, we, we didn't know this is the first of men. We had nothing. We had no ideas of any kind other than let's just have this experience. And it was just amazing. I mean, it was very powerful. And people felt very strongly about it. It was a time of really intense emotion and it was just, it was like lightning in a bottle. I mean, it was really, really powerful. Some of the people were at that very first meeting are on, like on our board today. You know, like, I mean, that was a very, uh, I would say a number of us felt like it was a life-changing experience. So, um, but we had no plan. So the only thing we could think of was to have another one, Yeah, which we did. About three weeks later, 120 miles up the road in uh, uh, blanking on the name of the little town. And um, <clears throat> and the same thing happened. Really powerful experience. So then we're like, well, good grief. What are we going to do now? We had no plans at all. So we were just, the three of us were sitting there talking and we said, well, what if we did like 40 or 50 of them? How would we do that? Yeah. And I remember saying, well, let's get a bus. That seems like the cheapest and most efficient way to get around the country. We can kind of pretend like we're rock and roll, you know, or, you know, musicians were on a tour, you know, so, you know, kind of a fantasy, right? You get yeah. to go see America. <laughs> like Walt Whitman meets, you know, Kerouac or something. <laughs> so we, uh, uh, so that's what we did. We got a, we got a foundation to pay for, uh, uh, uh God knows why they did it. Cause it was, we were the most disorganized people in the world. And we just four or five, we got four, we had three or four people who had been to one of those workshops, got on a bus with us and we drove around the country for six weeks. And the only way we would have people to meet with in these towns was if 
we began to get a little media coverage because it was kind of an innovative thing. Yeah, and everybody, yeah. you know, so we, so people would call us up and say, oh, could you come to our town? We said, well, we happen to have a bus. Yes, we'll do that. So we did that for 40 of these workshops. We did 40. Bill and I chaired every one of them. David was the uh, organizer of them. He got the people there. So that took us to uh, the fall of 2017. And Bill said, we just, as fun as this is, we just can't spend the rest of our lives wandering around on a bus doing one after these. What if we trained other people to do them? How would we do that? Let's make them pay out of their own pocket to come to an inconvenient place, stay in a hotel they have to pay for, and listen to eight hours a day of me lecturing them on how to do these workshops and then have that to sign an agreement to run at least four and to be a part of a rigorous evaluation. They'll not get a penny for it. They'll get no recognition of any kind. They'll just do it because they care about their country. We said, sounds great. A <laughs> hundred people took us up on that offer. We had five of these things around the country. Bill lost his voice. And we would we go from town to town. We had one in Nashville. We had one in Minneapolis. I mean, I don't even remember that. We had one in uh, Virginia. And so we, we had, then we had a hundred people that were ready to go do these. And we had no idea if they'd ask to go do it. Would they work? You know, well, it worked. They did a great job and they're still, now we have, I think we have about 600 doing them now today. We have, I think we have 1,400 total volunteers because we also have some to organize the work. We have one conservative, one liberal, each brings seven to the event. And there's a whole protocol. And now that a lot of it's online, there's a whole group of volunteers that make that happen. Um, So... So we did that another year, and we said, well, okay, we're going to see what happens. So by the end of 2018, I don't know, I think we had done, I don't know, several hundred of these things. And they were, you know, fill out evaluations, and they said, "This this is meaningful. So then we said, well, let's start chapters. And let's start, let's charge people dues to join and form chapters. How much are the dues? $12. What are we going to call chapters? We're going to call them alliances. So you, you go to the workshop, you pay $12, you're a member, then you go in the community, start an alliance, as long as you do it paired up with somebody from the other. We use the term red and blue. So if you're yeah. blue, you have to do it with the red, red, blue. So they started doing that. And it, what was so amazing about it is that people just, stepped up to do this. I mean, um, I'm the president of the organization. I co-founded the organization with Bill and David. We were the only three people involved in it for a a long time. I co-chaired the first 40 of these meetings. I knew everybody. (laughs) But now I meet people all the time who hardly know who I am, (laughs) and I don't know them at all. And they say, oh, braver angels. And we're, you know, we're doing this many workshops this month and in Wyoming and in, you know, Idaho. And here's our group and we're excited. And this is our challenge. I'm like, really? Like, boy, you people are great. Well, who are you? Like, oh, I'm the president. 
you know, mm. like really, yeah. like I never met these people. Yeah. Uh, they're all, all volunteers and they're all just doing it. And it's wonderful. It's like, it's like, um, I don't know. It's like you're standing on a corner and you just feel a wind start blowing, yeah. you know? Like, no, you're not thinking. So there's no plan. There's no strategy. We just like, it just began to happen yeah. almost despite us. You know what I mean? We were just trying to kind of keep up with the wind. Yeah. Really. Yeah. That's the best way I know how to describe it. And then we had a convention and then, you know, I'm not saying there was no leadership. I mean, obviously there's some leadership, but, but overwhelmingly this is a grassroots social movement style feeling. I yeah. mean, if you read accounts of other social movements, I mean, as a Southerner, of course I would, I've done a lot of studying of the civil rights movement and of course, civil rights movements, much more important than what we're doing, I think. But, but you know, that same phenomenon yeah. where the leaders of it, I had no idea. I mean, people would just, you know, some student at Fisk University decides they're going to have a sit-in at the local lunch counter. Yeah. Dr. King didn't know about that. None of them knew. They just happened, yeah. you know? Yeah. So there's a little bit of that to it. It's exciting. And in the past, you know, like, I have a lot of experience being out there, like, you know, advocating for lost causes, but, uh, you know, like last defender of a dying breed, you know, it's not like this here. People really want to do this. So, um, yeah, it, it's, I've never been a part of anything like it. Really. You said previously in the conversation that for many people, it's a life changing experience yeah. being at these. And I'm wondering, why and what what seems to happen over i mean 14 hours over a weekend it's a significant amount of time to be around people voluntarily in this era who you know disagree with you possibly vehemently about something that you cherish almost definitely vehemently yeah yeah what happens in a format like that and i'm i'm interested in any details you provided in terms of the structure of how you set up these weekends but what tends to what tends to, what tends to be so meaningful how do people seem to change if at all during that during those weekends during the sessions the most common one we do now is seven hours over the course of a saturday we'll also have we have we'll also have a number of variations on the workshops now that um uh some focus on skill building some focus on other things so we have a kind of a more complex menu now, but the one we started with and the one that's still the most common is what we call red blue. Yeah. So it's the, the, the typical thing would be seven or eight <coughs> reds, seven or eight blues, each one recruited by one of their people, you know? So, <clears throat> and then you would have two uh, moderators, one red, one blue who've been trained to do this, mm. but they're doing it as volunteers, yeah. you know? <clears throat> and um, the purpose of the, of the what 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 change it what people change we do what was called checkouts so at the end of the time you do a brief checkout and the checkout question is what are you taking away from today that's the checkout question and the most common answer that we would that we get is 
we're less divided than we've been told. Hmm. Usually people say that, many, many people say, use that exact sentence. We're less divided than we've been told. So I started going up to people afterwards and said, well, who told you? And they usually had the media. Or they say other things. But they say, like, in other words, we thought, I thought yeah. coming into this, that I would have nothing in common with these people, that they'd be crazy. They're cra- I thought they were crazy, you know. A lot of people would say, uh, and people on both sides would say this. They would say, well, I didn't think this would work because I'm a person who likes to use facts and logic and reason, and, the, and these other people don't. So I'd have a hard time talking to them. Every, a lot of people said that. <laughs> I, I use my mind. They use their feelings. We'll never communicate. Uh, um, so it's that, it's that um, and you know what happens to you when you experience a, an enemy a perceived enemy is someone that you can actually have some flicker of friendship with something. It literally lights up your brain. I mean, there's really a biochemical aspect of this. It, it, the pleasure centers in your brain warm up. Mm. I mean, you get a good feeling. It's Mm. almost like it's a, I don't want to overstate it, but it's a little bit like taking a drug. Yeah. You, you, You get a buzz. I mean, literally, you almost literally get a buzz. And so you want more. Yep. And so it's not like, oh, my, it's not like eat your peas. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. Oh, well, it was worth it because I learned, you know, like study. No, no, you feel good about this. You know, you felt like, good grief. I finally, I've realized that these people are not nearly as bad as I thought they were. Some of them actually liked and we're going to meet again. We're going to we're going to become you know. And we just become we call them better angel stories. We change the name to braver angels. We call them braver angel story. And when we say it's a braver angel story, we mean two people who thought they were going to be enemies who are now friends. Yeah. And you know, I don't know some of the our last convention. I mean, just to take any one of a jillion examples. I mean the it uh, <clears throat> the the. At um, Graceland College in Leona, Iowa, the, the, the very uh, conservative uh, head of young Republicans and the very progressive head of the young Democrats uh, became friends through Braver Angels, and they they hitchhiked together to our convention. And they're like buddies. They're buddies today, right now. They're buddies. Um, they're friends because of um, this kind of experience. And so that's the that's the magic of it. That's the fundamental um it, it, it it's the belief that the person that you are afraid of you don't have to be and you might and you can actually have a a good relationship with notwithstanding the fact that you disagree about a lot of things that's it. That's the thing we're looking for. Yeah. Now we're looking for it to happen institutionally and in other ways too. But the, if you boiled it, if you put it in a pot and just boiled it until you got the kind of crystalline essence of it, that's what it would be. And what in 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 it lights people up, you know, unexpectedly because they're yeah. not expect they're not they're they're thinking they walk into it like oh what on earth you know it doesn't happen to everybody. I mean, we had one guy who said um, he's. <laughs> That his check, his checkout was, 
<laughs> he said, I came into this session suspecting that these other people were assholes, and now I know they are. <laughs> that was his checkout. But that was rare. You know, he was he was uh, he was an angry guy and he had a bad somebody had a bad conversation. So, but the overwhelming majority of people, it's like it's like, um, I actually like these people, you know. They're I can think of them as neighbors rather than um a kind of these alien creatures, you know, who cause because part of what part of what you hear now in so many conversations if you ask people about politics, so they'll they, they won't say um they won't just say, well, you know, I, these 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 conservatives have bad ideas. They'll say, Yeah. I can't believe anybody would think this. I can't even imagine it. I can't imagine how anybody with an ounce of intelligence or moral uh, uh, sensitivity could possibly believe this. And they're bewildered yeah. at, the, at the weirdness of what they perceive to be these other people. It's like incomprehensible. Yeah. You know? And they keep saying, can you tell me what this is all about? And we say, well, actually, we can. Because you go to this thing, you get to talk to them. Have you done that? Well, no, not really. They haven't. Except, you know, maybe they have a crazy uncle or something. Yeah. But And so that's the... Um, it, it sounds a little simplistic, but that's really the formula. And I don't know any way... I really think it's the only way to change the country. You know what I mean? Yeah. In other words, it, it, for people who say, well, you know, that's all well and good, but there's a lot of Americans out there. And what about the people in Washington? What about people in the media? Well, yeah, that's true. We're thinking about that. Yeah. We are beginning to work with those people. We're, yeah. We do podcasts now. We do. We try to model different things in the media. So it's not like we're just naive. But I honestly, <clears throat> I don't know what's going to change the country on this other than what I just said, you know. In other words, um, I don't think there's a way to short circuit yeah. this fundamental relationship building aspect of it. Because otherwise you're just going to, what, what are we going to do? Uh, you know, some smart people are going to meet at the Aspen Institute and come up with a plan. Yeah. yeah. No, that's not going to happen. Yeah. Some clever person in the media is going to come up with a television show. No, that's not going to happen. Yeah. Some people in Congress are going to say, ah, We've seen the light. Yeah. Now we're going to start doing. No, that's not going to happen. Yeah. You know, it's only going to happen when society as a whole begins to uh, change, and then there'll be some people in the media. Then there will be some people in Congress. Then there will be some uh, clever people that go to conferences at, at fancy um, retreat centers. But that top down. Um, a top-down strategy, I don't think will work on this in yeah. this case. Yeah. So it, and it seems like the more we can incentivize our fellow citizens to go to one to a session like this to to, to view it almost like a civic responsibility, a duty to be a good citizen to partake in a session where they're engaging with people they disagree with is is something that should be lauded and incentivized and 
You don't have to be passive. You know, that's yeah. the thing. You don't have to think of democracy as consuming information yeah, from the yeah, media. Yeah. And it's even more than voting. I mean, voting is obviously incredibly important um, uh, uh, facet of uh, democracy. But um, I, I think we need a more... Uh, just a little bit more robust conception of what it means to be a citizen yeah. and getting out in it, get, get, getting out in it, get a little dirt on your shoes, engaging, engaging with your fellow citizens about the business of democracy that we ought to be able to do that. Yeah. You know, and that there have been times in our history when we've been better at this than others, where people understood citizenship as not this passive thing of, oh, I have an opinion about climate change or I have an opinion about the wall. Well, that's all well and good. But how about actually being a citizen in the sense of going out and engaging with other citizens in the work of democracy? How about that? Yeah. You know, and if you do that, um, you are going to find and I'm sorry I keep coming back to this, but it's it's it makes you feel good. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. This is not like eat your peas. This is not like, oh, you know, you might not want to serve on jury duty, but this is part of your civic. No, well, actually, all that's true, but you're really gonna like this. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Which people do, you know? And I and we're getting relatively close to the end of the conversation, but I, I I th first of all, I should just say, I think what you're doing is extraordinarily important. And um, Thanks. I, I, I said this before we started recording that I, I really admire what you're doing and what the people who are involved in Braver Angels are up to. And I think you're totally right that this has to be a bottom-up thing and not a top-down thing. I yeah. think that's the only solution that would actually help citizens convince themselves that there's a lot of the fear that they may have in their minds of people who they disagree with is has been is just BS. If it's, you think about the things that have really changed the country, it's typically not always, but it's typically been, that's what it, it's been. Yeah. It's been, um, you know, it's been what the, it's been what the constitution calls we, the people it's been th that for better or worse in America, this is how things work. Yeah. You know, you don't, you know, Tocqueville once famously said, um, <clears throat> he said, uh, if you want to make a change, in uh, France, you go to the court. If you the king, you know the king, uh, the king, the king's court. If you want to make a change in Britain, you go to a man of rank. You know yeah. the aristocracy. No. If you want to make a change in America, you form an association with your fellow citizens. No. That's how it works. Yeah. Uh, which, um, so that's what we're doing. Yeah. A few last questions. One is. When, when people come to these sessions and they come away, and even though you said there was a man who confirmed that he had suspected people were assholes prior to it, and then it, he, that was confirmed after spending seven hours with people that he, uh, he disagreed with, what, what do you think people are disabused of during these sessions? That what, what, what do they see or experience that tends to come away with the conclusion, the line that you said is the most common takeaway, which is that we're a lot less divided than, than I thought we were. There, we have a lot more in common than I realized. What, why? What do you think is happening to them? Probably I think the main thing is that um, you come to believe that, that these, pe that these uh, enemies of yours are in good faith. Mm. 
They're decent people. They're sincere. They're trying to do what they think is best for their country. That they're not just playing some tricky, you know, they're not, they're not hypocrites. They're not saying they do one thing. They have a hidden agenda. They're since they're like you are. They're sincere. Hmm. You know, they have they're you 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 learn that they're in good faith. Hmm. Um, you come to believe that. The other thing you see is that you don't agree on policy, but there are some shared values. That's the other big thing. Like, um, um, I'm trying to, we have a big part of the exercise, uh, the big part of the day where the question is, what are some of your life experiences that have shaped your political views? And, um, you listen to other people say, there's a whole structure to this, but, Hmm. um, and so, you know, um, uh, you get a guy who'll say, well, you know, um, my, 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 my grandparents came over here from such and such a country and they worked really hard. They didn't have anything. They worked really hard. They built a business. They, you know, they pulled themselves up, you know, by their own initiative and hard work. And that's what I, you know, that's what I believe in. And I don't like people to tell me that, you know, whether well, it should be replaced by some other arrangements, you know? Hmm. And so let's say I'm a, I'm not that kind of person politically, but you know, I could see that's, there's something to admire there. You know, there's some values that you can say, yeah, I, I kind of like that story about working hard and building up something. And, you know, anyway, you, you see that some values are the same, even though the policy agreements are still there. Uh, and another thing that we see over and over again is that sometimes people, I would say lots of times people think that, um, here's how the logic goes. Um, uh, I don't like the wall. You like the wall. You tell me, I think we need a wall. I'm thinking to myself, God, Dan thinks we should build a wall on the southern border. I wonder why he thinks that. Well, what will happen if the wall gets built is that a lot of people will suffer. Children will be separated from their parents. People who need to come to this country won't be able to. There will just be a lot of suffering. Therefore, what Dan wants is a lot of suffering. That's what he's in favor of. Yeah. Dan wants that. Yeah. How crazy is Dan? Yeah. What kind of wacko <laughs> sociopath is he for wanting to produce suffering? Yeah. But if I talk to you about the wall, it turns out that you don't want to produce suffering. You have reasons that have to do. So the the thing is, the the the, the false step in mm-hmm. my mind is. I project yeah. that the result of your proposal is going to be bad. Therefore, I think you want the bad thing. That's almost never true. Yeah. And so the only way for me to know that that's not true is for you to tell me that's not true and for me to see that you're sincere. So this happens all day during these, during these conversations. Like, oh, really? Yeah. So Dan does it. Dan likes the wall, but it's not that he he hates immigrants, you know, or that he, you know, it's not all the things I thought were his motives or they're not his motives. Yeah. That's just opens up all kinds of, um, 
Can I just tell you one quick thing? Of you, course. You asked for an example. I, I meant to say this uh, earlier, but um, the first thing we do in these things is call. I think I think it's called Beyond Stereotypes. Out when we first started, that's what we called it. And what happens is the conserv reds and blues have separate. They go into separate rooms, and each one of them makes a list of all the stereotyped opinions yeah. that the other group has of them. So if I'm a red, I'm going to say, what do liberals think about me? What are their stereotyped opinions of me? And me and my fellow, you know, we're going to make a list. We do. They literally make a list. And, and they really like it because it's like, <laughs> and it also just gets out the worst stuff, yeah. Right, yeah. right? It just gets it all right out there. So then, um, the next part of the thing is, uh, what is it about these things that are stereo that are exaggerated or are unfair? So invariably, this almost never changes. The first thing that conservatives believe that liberals believe about them is that they're racists. <laughs> this is at the top of every single list. <laughs> so um, the so then then they say, okay, what do we think about this stereotype is exaggerated or unfair? Why do we think it's wrong for them to call us racist? Yep. Then, the final part is, is there a kernel of truth to it? So you have to look inward, yep. right? So usually on the, on the blue, on the liberal side, it's usually, almost always, baby killer is on the list. Yeah. And we don't just, slaughtering babies is fine with us. Yeah. Well, why is that wrong? Is there a kernel of truth? It's a powerful, powerful exercise because then they get together and they talk about it. And you can just see, you know, first of all, every bad thing that you're thinking about me, I already know that you're thinking. Yeah. Yeah. Right? So it's all out there, right? I don't have to wait for you to call me a bad name. I know that this is in your mind. And so it just kind of clears the air, you know? And, and Bill, who designed this thing, didn't add the kernel of truth part. But what happened was in one of the early workshops, the I was in this, I was in it, and there was a, the conservative group, the red group, invariably racist was the number one. Why is that a bad? Why is that wrong? Why is that an exaggerated? Well. We're not racist. We believe in individual, you know, color of your, you know, content, not color of your skin, but content of your character. You know, they had a whole lot of reasons why they weren't racist. Kernel of truth. Silence. <clears throat> Some guy gets up and says, well, here's what I think a kernel of truth is. Um, most conservatives are not racist but most racists are conservatives. I think there's a, I think that's, that's what I think. And yeah. I'm a conservative. Yeah. So they get back, they go to, to the group. This guy gets up and does his thing. And when he says that you could have heard a pin drop because not only is he saying, we know that you think we're racists. I want to tell you with my voice full of emotion why you should not label us racists. And I want to say there's something real in this. 
that we can see and we're willing to tell you. Yeah. It is powerful. It is such a powerful experience because you can just see, oh, I can breathe, you know? This is real. I'm having a real conversation yeah. with people that seem to be in goodwill. They're willing to look inward. They don't think they have perfect answers to everything. They don't think they, they don't think their movement is perfect. They don't think their agenda. You know, they they know that they're we're all fallible people here, and we're trying to relate together as citizens. And it's one of those things where you just, um, it 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 changes the way you think about the other and for a lot of for a lot of people it gives them the ability to to be more i guess honestly introspective about their own thing you know because they're not they're not in a defensive crouch they realize that they can admit to some uncertainty or to admit to a flaw or admit to something that they're not proud of in them in their group and nobody's going to like cut their head off right Because the other group's doing the same thing. And it, I'll tell you, man, it is a powerful experience. And it, you people you people bond. The people feel like, God, here we are, citizens who love our country, really talking to one another. Yeah. You know? It's great. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, it sound, you, you used this analogy earlier, but it sounds like a form of civic therapy in a lot of ways. And it is. It, yeah. It, it really is. We call it civic friendship. Sometimes we call it patriotic empathy. Mm-hmm. It's the idea that um, sometimes they call it higher partisanship. Yeah. It's the idea that we're all, we're partisans. We all have a candidate we're going to fight for. We have a set of beliefs we believe in. We believe in them strongly. So in that sense, we're all, we're, we're partisans. Yeah. But there is also a higher partisanship where you, in addition to fighting for your candidate or your cause, there is a higher sense in which you have to transcend that for something that, that is shared a higher partisanship, you know, um, and people respond to that because we're not asking them to give up their yeah. partisan. We're not saying, you know, you don't have to turn into milk toast. You don't have to never show emotion. You don't have to water down your views. You don't have to say that you're a centrist. Yeah. You don't have to do any of that. Yeah. You can bleed for Bernie. You can go to your Trump rally. You can, you can volunteer for Joe Biden. You can do all those things. But there is a there's also a higher partisanship that says we still are one country. Yeah. We still have to share this country, and we have to, um, you know, ultimately it I, it sounds really maybe not so tough minded, but ultimately you have to love you have to have care for other people. You know, there has to be some form of love, some form of caring for the other. That's, yeah. I mean, it sounds like Sunday school, but yeah. it's the truth. It's just the truth. Yeah. Well, in the era of the incentives, we seem to have walked into a time period in, in American history where the incentives are from the media or the technology, the major forces in our culture are towards division. And this is a pushback against that. It's a ground, a a ground bottom up option to push back against some of those forces. And I want to close, um, by making a comment and then asking a a final question to you. The first comment is I have no doubt that 
and you alluded to this earlier, that our leaders, our, our elected political leaders might also greatly benefit from something like this mm. because they're the talking heads propagating a lot of this nonsense, a lot of the ideas yeah. of division. Yeah. You know, there, there seems to be an incentive structure for them also to double down on, yes. on that mentality. And yes. I wonder if um, some of that would get mitigated by going through some sort of intensive weekend or even a Saturday. Uh, and so I hope just as a citizen that you guys, you know, are able to potentially make some headway there and, and, uh, uh, create a model, maybe starting at a state government level that could potentially bubble up into a federal mm. or I don't know. Um, I'm sure it's something that we've you've started about. doing it. We yeah. call it braver politics mm. and we're saying we can take our model into the halls of power and people can benefit. And, um, and we, we had, a um, uh, 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 uh Recently, a Republican and Democratic member of Congress uh, did this. They sent their staffs to have a joint um, red-blue workshop. So the staffs actually talked to one another yeah. and became friends across the line. Yeah. The staff members. It never happens. Staff play a very important Absolutely. role. They're yeah. like kind of the, you know, if you think of the members as the doctors, they're the, the, the staff are the nurses. They, they yeah. have a lot of power. Yeah. They have a lot of influence. So, um, and we've, uh, we've also done a, doing a, a, a representative Dean Phillips, who's a member of the, um, select committee on the modernization of Congress and a very strong braver angel supporter is having, um, bill is leading a series of what they call common ground district meetings where they bring together, um, uh, Republicans and Democrats, equal numbers carefully and go through a structure, um, of talking about issues in common, starting with local issues. And Dean Phillips, the representative and uh, the Republican who's, who's going to be doing it soon, they're just sitting there participating like everybody else, you know? So, so, so Bill told me that one of them, the, um, so they did, you know, so the, you know, they're like 10 members of the, you know, five and five, but one of them's the, the member of Congress. Yeah. He's just sitting there. Yeah. Right. Talking like everybody else. Bill said that um, uh, a guy was talking, uh, 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 just a, a guy, and the congressman, as congressmen are wont to do, interrupted and started to give a little speech about something or other because he thought it was important for him to say something. And Bill said, um, sorry, Daryl has the floor now. Yeah. And, oh, sorry. So when they're sitting around that table, they're just another citizen. Yeah, now, yeah. they're also a member of Congress yeah. and people respect them. And obviously they have certain knowledge that is special and they have, you know, nobody's trying to say they're not a member of Congress. But at that point, they're citizens. And it's 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 powerful. They're going to do he, – he wants to do like 20 of them all over his district and build up um, a body of knowledge where, you know, these – people, about half of whom voted for him and half of whom didn't, mm. are actually beginning to build some common values around some of the issues that he'll have to be voting on. So it's, they're not lobbying him. They're not forming, a, they're not picketing him at a, at a town hall. But it's a form of, for him, it's a form of constituent communication that he never gets. Yeah. And um, there's some other things too, but you know, you're, you're, what you're saying is, you know, we're figuring out how to do that now. And these people like it. Yeah. You know, they, they're not, 
they're not, um, some of them tell us, they say, we are in a toxic work environment. You know? Yeah. We worked really hard to get this job. We raised a lot of money. We campaigned. Sometimes it's a culmination of many years of work and aspiration. We get here and we find out we're in a toxic environment. Yeah. It's horrible. Yeah. We hate it. Yeah. We don't get to do what we were elected here to come here to do. We do other things. We, 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 we prance around in front of cameras in order to po pose and scream and yell, and we dial for dollars. Yeah. And we don't spend any time legislating. I mean, that's almost literally true. And so they're, they're sick of it. They're yeah. sick of it. Yeah. Who wouldn't be? Yeah. So they're looking for a way to get out. They're looking for those pleasure centers to light up in their brain. They yeah. actually, most of them came here because they care about the country Absolutely. and would like to yeah. make it better. So give them a chance. Yeah. It's healthier. It's healthier yeah. for everybody. If you can, yeah. if you can bridge yeah. that. Yeah. Um, last question I want to ask you is about people who are listening to this or watching this, who want to get involved or want to help. What is the best way from your perspective for people to help the organization now and for people that want to go to one of these weekend sessions or become a volunteer, how do they go about doing that? Yeah. Well, um, you know, we're only as in, we're only as good as the people who volunteer. This is a volunteer movement. And so what you can do if you are interested in helping is go to the, our website, www.braverangels.org. And the first thing you do is join. You mm. click where it says join. <laughs> mm. And you can join in about 45 seconds. It's $12, right? Mm. So it's not a lot. So you join. And the reason you join is because um, we're a member-run organization. You know, we're not, we're not dependent upon, you know what I mean? We, we, so it's the people. Once you join, you're really, you know, you're helping. It's your organization. Yeah. So then you, once you join, you, you can see what, where, whatever state you're in, you can, or what, how, if you're joining online, you can see the calendar of activities that you can participate in. If you want to be in a workshop, if you want to be skills training, if you want to, we have a bunch of stuff now. We have a film discussion groups. We have music. Stuff. I mean, hmm. there's a lot you can hmm. do. So you just pick anything you want to do. Nothing costs money. It's all, you know, once you're a member, yep. you're involved. Um, then if you, I would suggest first you go to something. Yeah. See if it's, you like it. You will like it. People like this. Yeah. Then if you really want to step up, you you become a volunteer. You volunteer to do something. Maybe you want to be trained into run one of these workshops. Maybe you want to be a, learn how to chair a debate, a braver into debate. Maybe you have a certain skill in the media or in writing or in tech or what you know, you have something you can contribute and you, you look at the opportunities depending on where you live, depending on what your skill is, depending on what your passion is. And you can become, you know, we have about 1,400 active volunteers now. So after you sign up, we'll have 1,401. Hmm. And when your neighbor hat does it, it'll be 1,402. And eventually we will build up to thousands and thousands and we'll change the country. That's yeah. the plan. Yeah. So, so, um, it's, it's pretty straightforward. If you, 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 you join, 
then you decide how you want to become active. And there's a, you know, every state has two coordinators, one red, one blue. They're all volunteers. We have district people, um, all volunteers. We have a national uh, field office, all volunteers. Well, 80% volunteers. Um, And so what you're doing is becoming one more citizen leader in a national movement of citizen leaders. And um, it's, yeah, it's, it's, yeah, that's what, that's what will be something that will be, I think, very meaningful for your life. And you will be doing something that absolutely will help your country. Yeah. Um, as a citizen of this country, as somebody who loves America, I, I want to just say, I think I speak for millions in a, uh, articulating or, or conveying an appreciation for what you're up to and what you're doing and a hope for the growth and the success of what Braver Angel is doing. I think this is one of the most important conversations I've ever had. Um, and I really, really appreciate you taking the time to do this and to go into such detail. Um, this place gives me hope and I, I really do appreciate what you're doing and, um, I hope you guys kick ass. I really Thanks, do. Thanks, man. I really, pre- that, that, those are wonderful. Uh, it's great to hear because, you know, I appreciate the chance to be on the program because I was mentioning before we started that it's rare to be able to have a really serious conversation usually because we're living in an age of sound bites and, yeah. um, quick in and outs. So I think what you're doing, which is pioneering a form of communication that is that, that, you know, it, it's kind of the brave angels way of doing things. Mm. You establish relationship. Everybody gets to share a little bit of who they are, you know, and it's not just boom, 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 quick, you know, talking points, you know? So anyway, I write back at you in terms of some real admiration of what you're doing. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. Yeah. Take care, man. Thank you for listening to this episode of Keep Talking. If you are finding value in this podcast, please consider supporting the show on Patreon at patreon.com backslash keep talking podcast. I truly appreciate all of you who are supporting the show.